We want better schools. We want them now. Stand in our way, and you'll catch these eight black hands with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecky, and Stewart. Join us now for an hour or more of talk on education and culture. Good evening, folks. Um, I think you guys can hear me. I'm not sure. Having some tech issues, but it sounds like I'm good. Uh, welcome to the Black Hands Podcast. We are on episode 138. Well, before we jump into anything, let's do a, a quick wellness check from the fellas. Fellas, how you guys doing? We'll start with uh, uh, Breezy. How you doing, sir? I'm doing good, man. I'm in the middle of a vacation right now. Somewhat of a staycation. So, I, you know, I, I just logged back on to be with y'all tonight. But this is the end of my staycation. So it's kind of like if you remember when you were a kid, what Sunday nights were like, knowing that you had to go back to school on Monday. That's what this feels like. So um, but I'm good. I'm so blessed. You feel like, great. You know, so I feel decent enough. You know how sometimes you need a vacation from your vacation when you're a father and you got multiple children and you, you do a staycation type thing. Sometimes you come back and you need, you know, a break from your break. But uh, but we're all right, man. We're good. We're good. That's what's up. Uh, Charles, how you doing, sir? I'm good, man. Happy to see y'all. Uh, just left Oakland a few days ago. Great event. Got to honor Jamoke, honor Dirk. We had a, a whole bunch of people come out in the rain, right, and go over this data. And then Oakland being Oakland, the cameraman got robbed. All his equipment and all the film right after. So it is, uh, but he's safe. He's safe. And the event happened. It was a blessing. So, you know, looking forward to seeing y'all in a few days. That's what's up. Reef, how you doing, sir? Good, man. Doing well. Doing well. You know, as the kids get older, that means you're getting older. So, you know, baby girl turned six. So just had a lot of time to spend uh, with family. And um, yeah, as they age, so do we, you know, but it's all good. Had a good time. That's what's up. Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, (laughs) No complaints here. Uh, Ready to uh, jump in with the show. Let's get it. Let's get it moving. Uh, So we got two guests. Uh, I don't know if you guys check the show notes, but they've been in there since Monday. And so. (laughs) 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 Um, We got some intros that need to occur. And so uh, Breezy, I'm I'm turning it over to you. So this show is special uh, because we're talking about media and we're talking about just like the role that the media plays in covering uh, blacks in education. And so Chris, man, you, you, you're like the, you're the CEO of Brightbeam, bro. So like you see media inside and outside. Right. And so what's your initial take in terms of like, just like how media shows up? I mean, we have two very good guests tonight that that can tell us a lot from a journalist perspective, what they think. But from what I see, here's here's a couple of things just to be mindful of. If you go to the NWA or the NWA, the EWA, which is the Educators Writers Association, uh, education. uh, Yeah, I know. (laughs) Writers Association. I didn't know that they existed before I started doing this work a few years ago. And then I started having interactions with them. One year they handed out uh, stats that they had done some research to to tell us what the makeup of uh, education journalist was. And it was something that was very high. It was like in the 80s percent. Uh, white and women. Uh, and, and these are the education journalists who tell the stories of America's schools and teachers and students. Um, and that very much reflects the same, you know, the demographic of who's in the classroom teaching. Right. So you have, you know, the person in the classroom teaching who doesn't always represent the kids in the in the schools and in the classroom. And then you have the people who tell the stories to the public that persuade the public or keep the public informed or don't um, also mirroring that same group of people, nothing wrong with them, you know, but even with the best of intentions, this would be something that you would, would make you raise eyebrows to of, okay, this is who's telling the public the stories. And I think that creates blind spots. It creates cultural uh, blind spots when um, education, journalism, and journalist tell the stories. They do their best, I think, oftentimes to tell it from as much of a broad perspective as they can. And they try to include uh, black and brown and and, and uh, other voices into the stories as much as they can. There's still going to be blind spots in my mind. One blind spot happens when um, 
they they are overly sympathetic. I think oftentimes with people like Randy Weingarten or with the teachers in the classroom and very teacher centric and not student or or parent centric. Um, and then when it comes to parents, just there's a mismatch between them and the parents that we talk about on this show all the time. That's a problem. So that that's one issue that I would hope we would raise tonight. And here's just another issue. The state of play in journalism period has been shifting and changing uh, in ways that are very important. Local education news reporting has undergone uh, undergone changes over time. In many places, there is no more uh, uh, education reporter of note, a person who will stick with the stories, you know, for a period of time and be able to go deep on a district and go deep on, on uh, all the issues. Um, even when there were dedicated education reporters in, in most markets or in many markets, it was considered a soft beat. Uh, and this comes from an education journalist who, who I asked about this. It's considered a soft beat, a woman's beat, uh, not the most important thing you can cover. You might want to cover city hall or crime or other things. Um, um, sports. Yeah. <laughs> but, but even with that, downplaying of the role of the what it used to be it's not even that anymore you have newspapers being taken over by hedge funds they are cutting staff uh there's places where there used to be three four five six education reporters and now there's none um which has opened the door for there to be like punk rock education news reporting third party um very opinionated or um or non-profit um education journalism that's grant funded um not necessarily funded by a ads and by local newspaper and local people oftentimes. And that has changed, I think, the landscape, you know, to some extent, my nonprofit fits within that. We're Bright Beam. We tell the stories of students, teachers, and parents. Um, um, but there's, you know, there's a crowded field. You have like uh, Chalkbeat that does the Chalkbeat thing. You have uh, Heckinger Report that does the Heckinger Report thing. Uh, uh, um, and we have a guest tonight, Alexander Russo, who you will uh, introduce, who uh, also, you know, writes for an organization that um, allows him the freedom uh, to write stories from a different perspective. And Bro, then you you're, have introducing, you're introducing Alexander, bro. Well, you know, okay. So then, so so I'll say this: Alexander Russo is a good person to talk to about this. He's our guest tonight. Um, he's been uh, a journalist for a long period of time. He's also somebody who uh, is um, he he doesn't just write education stories. He also writes about the state of play within education journalism. He takes other journalists to task for stories that they're they're either um, telling in a very facile way or they're not getting deep enough on or they're taking the wrong angles on, which is rare. It's rare that journalists actually do the job of policing other journalists or themselves in the ways that they should. Uh, um, Mary Jo Matta is somebody that would be, is also going to be a guest with us tonight who has a background uh, in journalism, but... Uh, what's interesting about her and others, she represents, I think, an emerging field of people that write the stories for us who are doing it more on a freelance basis. You have people like Rebecca Klein, who used to write for Huffington Post. Huffington Post underwent a bunch of layoffs. And now you have people like Rebecca Klein who are out there writing freelance. You have people like, um, um, well, you know, I'm not going to name a lot of other names, but uh, um, uh, our guest today, Mary Jo uh, Maddock, can tell us more about the freelance life and what it takes to uh, write stories that get all the voices included as you can. And Alexander Russo is very good with, a, I think, a longer view of what has happened in education, much better than what I just gave you as an intro. Um, but I'm seeing it as a person and the way I think we should see it on this show is as people that are representative of stories that don't get told oftentimes. And oftentimes, in my mind, it feels like the teachers, they're journalists, they're unionized journalists, and they're ununionized journalists. Um, they have a familial type of connection with each other. You'll have a young white woman writing stories where she's talking to other white teachers, and she might have a teacher mom at home, or she might have a teacher aunt at home, and she may have went to a suburban school where things were fairly good. Uh, the best that they could possibly do oftentimes, I think, is fall short. The worst that they could do is just show complete allegiance to the existing system and leave us without a representative voice uh, in the storytelling machine of things. Got it. All right. So bring our guests on. Uh, uh, Charles, I thought you were supposed to introduce Mary Jo. Because funny story. Didn't you guys meet like on a plane or something one time? 
Was it in a plane or a conference? It was was a plane. No, it was definitely a plane. Oh, yeah, because you walked through the middle of the aisle and I just went, excuse me, are you Charles Cole? The oh, no, it was one of them moments. And all of these like, are white you Dr. Cole? around me were just like, what is happening right now? It was a very amazing moment. I think it was on, I can't even remember what flight we were coming. Oh, it was from Chicago to oh. Oakland, I think. Yeah, that's right. Flight that I very often. Uh, and if, it, if I remember the story, he was bumping everybody with his bag as he's walking down the uh, hall. His five bags. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Don't let you take five. Uh, but, uh, but the, and then the other part of the story is uh, we had, share, you know, shared work interests or whatnot. And I got to speak to some of our young people in Oakland at Google. And it was really cool. Uh, but you got to ask her how that, that part went. But I, I had a really good time with those young people. Yeah. So they um, loved it. Yeah, they were really into it. They love Dr. Cole. So jumping right in, Alexander, man, what's what's your take on 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 the media and 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 just what they're doing in terms of just black education writ large? Well, I come from you know I come from education journalism. I've been doing it for twenty years now, and um, uh, I, I admire the intelligence and effort and ambition of a lot of people that write education journalism, but I, I've been doing this media criticism thing for five years, the last five years. And, um, I, I'm worried. I, I feel like, I feel like despite all these efforts and all this, uh, 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 time and skill, I feel like the story doesn't get told the way it should be. A lot of the time, there are these great examples of amazing journalism that we all pass around and like now and then, but day in and day out, and especially at the national level, the people who still have the the money and staff, and you know they can pick any journalist they want. Um, I feel like the story often fits a preset narrative, or or uh, like Chris said, it's super deferential to the school system. We saw this happen with Parkland, um, for example. We saw this happen with all the schools that stayed closed for so long. Um, I feel like uh, there's something off. Um, and I write a column and a newsletter every week trying to figure out what it is and trying to give people ideas for how to make it better. And, uh, and yet every Monday I wake up and people have sent me a story that's, that's wrong or imbalanced or just misses the point. So I hate to say it, but I'm, I'm worried about education journalism. Man, thanks for sharing that. So I, I know we've we've seen uh, some coverage of parents, uh, parent advocates or whatever. And like they I, I feel like those stories always get slanted uh, in terms of, you know, like they it, it's oftentimes backhanded remarks like parents aren't smart enough to advocate for their kids or whatever. And like it just it upsets me. Um, Reef, man, what's your thoughts on uh, on on the media and just how they represent black folks? I mean, I think, you know, Chris laid it out um, as well as, uh, you know, Alex. I think a lot of times it's Alexander, sir. Alexander. Alexander. He'll um, come for you, bro. He'll send people <laughs> for you. Well, He'll bad, send well, people bad. for you. <laughs> uh, you know, I think there are a lot of voices that are missing, but it's not, you know, it's not surprising. It's the same voices that um, have been marginalized for, you know, generations and decades. And it's not accidental. It's purposeful. Um, if you're a reporter and you see that you are constantly going to the same people um, that who don't have children um, in mass in public schools, uh, you know, it's, it just continues to be interesting. I know in Philadelphia, I was having a conversation with a group of reporters. I'm like, yo, why is this angry older white lady who doesn't isn't connected to black communities? constantly being quoted. There are so many grandmothers and mothers and cousins and students who actually can tell their story way better than she can. She's not even telling the story. She's not even trying to tell the story. She's telling the story from a angry, older white woman who hasn't been in the district for generations, who started an organization like, yeah, we're fighting for public schools that none of our kids attend, you know, and we just want to do this. And at the cost of who, like whose story is not being told. And the same thing I used to teach eighth graders when we were, mm-hmm. when I was a literature and social study, whose story is centered and whose is, is off to the side, whose experience and perspectives are centered and who is being ignored. If eighth graders can get it, then folks doing uh, reporting should be able to get it. And, and unfortunately too many spaces, it doesn't. And it's the ecosystem as Chris described this. If you have 
Pennsylvania, 96, which now is down to 94% white teachers. And they leave, they become the coaches, they become, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, curriculum writers, they become policymakers. And guess what? They become ed reporters too. So, um, well, too you often. know, here in Minnesota, we have the same thing. Every time you say that, uh, Sharif, I'm always shaken by those stats in Pennsylvania because I think of you guys as way more diverse than Minnesota. Yeah, we're like the American, we're the American <laughs> Finland over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, so I always think of us as like, you know, like, but we used to have a reporter in Minneapolis named Stephen Brandt when I was on the school board who was dogged. And he was an old guy. He used to cover politics in City Hall and you couldn't get anything by him. And he would call you and leave you messages like, it's to your interest to call me back because the story is going to go on whatever day he would tell you what day it was. So he'd give you the now that was back when there was a credible threat that if you didn't call him back and you didn't get your, you know, comment in there or whatnot, it was going anyways. And he knew so much about the district and had so much background that it was a credible threat. When he left, they started replacing him with younger and younger and younger reporters until we got one that was fresh out of college and the district knew they didn't have to worry about anything anymore. <laughs> they were just like, so there's this newer crop. And I would love to ask neutralized. our guests, <laughs> they neutralized the, you know, the threat. I would love to ask our guests about a couple of things. One, about any generational issues in the depth of the reporting now in the field. Two, about what to me sometimes feels like super celebratory journalists love each other. Oh my God, I'm tweeting this New York Times person who I just love because she's fabulous and everything is fabulous that she does. She's amazing and blah, blah, blah. And it gets to be a little bit smarmy, a little bit like overly gratuitous at times. And then you have journalists who are making themselves the story. Oh my God, my thunder cut me off because I'm so good at what I do. You know, whatever. So um, um, I would just love to hear about, about the state of play with some of these folks here's my main question on it i just asked like several questions i do this sometimes here's my real question though but i know that's it that's what this is you know i'm sorry i apologize but my real question on this is we talk on this show about how teachers are prepared to do the work and how they come to the work culturally competent or not and what's their prep for covering you know working with the communities i want to know that about journalists what's their training that journalists get to be able to cover our communities and to do it with some degree of, I don't know, like professional understanding, anthropology or whatever, accuracy or whatever, like some ethics around how you cover communities that you're not part of. What's the prep? And you can answer any of that other voiceover stuff I did too, (laughs) if you want. Sherry, don't encourage them. (laughs) Mary Jo, we'll start with you. Well, you know, I, I come from a very different school of journalism because I did not have any training before I started Ed Surge at Ed Surge. My background was I was a classroom teacher and I got my degree, my master's of education and education and technology. So Alexander's probably the better person to ask about, you know, sort of the generation of journalists who actually came formally trained. Um, what was interesting about my background and the background of most of the journalists at Ed Surge was that Betsy Corcoran, who was the CEO at the time, was looking for people that didn't necessarily have some of that formalized training. I think to the end of trying to bring a new style of narrative to the forefront, like so specifically for me, so some would argue, and I, I can see why they would, that Ed Surge was a pro ed tech organization, media organization. And in many ways it is and still is. But I kind of spoke more with a voice that was like anti-tech because I was a teacher in LA during the one-to-one iPad debacle of 2000 and what was that? 2013, which was an absolute just mess. If you guys remember, it was like just the $1 billion mask of LAUSD. And so my voice was a lot more kind of anti-tech and, you know, some of the more traditional journalists that I met through EWA and some of these other um, education media organizations would argue that I kind of entered into my writing with an inherent bias. But my response to that was there's a lot of people already in this space. You know, you guys were kind of talking about almost like self masturbatoriness amongst like the mm-hmm. education journalism mm-hmm. world. I sort of like to think about it as I'm trying to pr- provide the other alternative perspective. Um, and I think sometimes was actually pressured into being more of like a pro ed tech writer. But 
from what I understand in my observations now, the younger generation of journalists that's coming into the forefront haven't necessarily had the same quote unquote formalized training. But formalized training is a weird term because there's a very I, I see this with academia right now while I'm getting my part time doctorate in education leadership is like there's a very, I think, white dominant narrative in the journalism prep space that I think still dominates some of these more traditional master's and bachelor's program of journalism. And so I wonder if actually by default, if people have less training, they're also not necessarily being trained in the potentially problematic ways of old. But I'm curious to hear Alexander's thoughts because he's been in the space a lot longer than I have. Mm. The, um, uh, uh, let me see what I can add. There's definitely a generational thing going on. Um, when it comes to uh, uh, the newer set of journalists, I, I feel like it's more political or ideological than anything else. You know, the last five or 10 years have been very sort of anti-school reform. And a lot of uh, the younger people, especially who come into journalism, have uh, taken that on. Um, and I feel like I, I see that or I feel that in the journalism that they um, that they produce. There's not a lot of interest in the younger journalists in holding the district accountable to delivering results for kids. Um, you can say what you want about how boring and predictable and traditional the, the old journalism was 10, 20, 30 years ago, but there was a there was a feeling of like, hey, we're we're holding the district to account for its results. And, and somewhere along the line, things got flipped a little bit and all of a sudden everyone wanted to, everyone forgot how bad school districts used to be is part of what happened. Um, and so people started taking aim at, at the reform efforts as if the reform efforts hadn't come out of a, a thing that was pretty, pretty bad that came before. In terms of training, you know, there's a lot of training on the content, like, uh, uh, like you can go to, grad school, uh, informal grad school, you can get seminar, seminars and courses and all sorts of things about uh, curriculum methods and school design and, and all of that. What there isn't is the thing, is the thing and, and maybe there's nothing that can be done. Um, uh, if you take a, a, a demographic, which we have in education journalism, if you take the white suburban, um, not first generation, not title one school, community of people and you who had a great experience in school. I've never met an education journalist who didn't have a great education experience, hmm. which is, which is wild. Hmm. And, and, mm -hmm. and I would agree with that. Yeah. Causes, causes a lot of problems, frankly, because if you don't know how effed up things can be, right. Um, then um, you, you don't know what is <laughs> part of you that doesn't have it in your bones about what you're there looking for. Um, there is not a ton of training, um, not nearly as much, as there should be. And there's been some movement on the demographics. Like there are a bunch of education editors uh, and team leaders who are, who are pe people of color, but I haven't seen the journalism change that much in the last five years. I do a newsroom diversity thing every year, sort of a education journalism, so white kind of thing, which is super awkward for me to do given <laughs> that I'm so white, but I do it anyway. And you know, the, the, the awkwardness hasn't changed. The people refusing to give me their numbers hasn't changed. And, and the numbers that I get haven't changed as, as much as I'd like. I do a webinar called Activism So Beige. So you you write in there with yeah, me, take bro. That screen, take, that screen, take that screen off here, man. Yeah, so, 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 um, man, what is, what is, all right, here we go. All right. So, so really, really quick before we jump to Charles, because I, I definitely want to get him to jump in and get his take on it. I just want to shout, I want to shout out Beth, Beth Hawkins. I'm her, I'm her fan guy. And yeah. so I'm a big fan of Beth Hawkins. So, uh, shout out Beth for tuning in. Uh, Charles, going to you, bro. Yeah. So, so, you know, as this goes into the next piece, I used to trust education journalism a lot more until I actually started doing work in education, uh, like when I worked <laughs> in the district. So, for instance, um, we would there would be times where the, the local paper just would publish stuff and say they reached out to our offices and they clearly didn't. Uh, but there was a moment where I felt the shark was jumped from educating the public to like pushing whatever like agenda that there was. Right. So, you know, so for instance, right in Oakland, why is it that energy converters and Marquise and students are the people that's lifting up A through G rates when isn't that what a journalist is supposed to do? Like to say, 
hey, you're reporting about graduation, but this thing is here. Or they are reporting on a school closure when it's closing, but the year building up when folks are saying, this school is going to close if these things don't happen. The school building holds 500 people. There's 100 people enrolled. You know, so I guess just given this political climate that we're currently in, where it's kind of a winner take all, people are choosing sides, including journalists, which is very scary. Uh, I really I wouldn't call them journalists under that state. But my question for you all is like, what's the media's role in getting things like CRT right or black history or just just general topics that the general public should be uh, more informed on? Like, do is there still a responsibility and role for education journalism. Mary Jo, you want to go? Yeah, I. Um, that's a great question, Charles. I think that I see it as two. I see. I see the role of journalists as twofold. One, I think that they have a responsibility to elevate the voices of folks that actually know and understand the topic at hand. So, like, I'll give you like. A prime example. So like yesterday we had this amazing researcher come and speak about um, uh, his name is Dr. Watson. He's out of the UCLA Blackmail Institute. And he came and spoke about uh, biophysical research that he and his team have done around the impact of microaggressions in school on black male youth in higher education. Now, you could have two approaches, right? You could have a journalist write a story about that and interview him or you could just have him write the story himself and work with him to create the article. I mean, he's already got the skill set. He's an academic, but you know, academia, media, sure, they're kind of different. I don't think I see enough journalists um, allowing their constituents to have the byline and and take the role of that person. And that's one thing that I've actually really enjoyed over the past couple of years of being an independent columnist is that I've honestly mainly just focused on bringing people onto a call, doing a Q&A with them and essentially just posing the questions and letting them speak. Um, so that's my first first thing. And then the second thing is, I mean, there are so many people writing about critical critical race, everything right now that don't really understand anything about critical race theory, critical race pedagogy. And so in my opinion, okay, so if you want to try and bring, you know, people from all sides of the spectrum, bring people that have knowledge of the subject, but fall on different ends of, you know, believing it should be utilized in school curriculum development, not utilized in school curriculum development, and let them have an upfront and honest conversation about this, just like we're doing right now. I think the problem with a lot of journalism these days is that the community is captured by the title and that's it. Like most of the time, um, I've noticed that on some social media accounts, they're asking you, have you actually read this before you share it? Which I find fascinating mm-hmm. because I mm-hmm. wish that more social media folks would actually encourage that kind of thing. So maybe it's better to have a podcast conversation and actually like mm-hmm. bring people on and have them, you know, talk about it face to face as opposed to just having, you know, kind of one perspective, a journalist like take on one story, put it out there. And then there's no opportunity for a back and forth dialogue about it. Cause I also think that talking about really any sort of like, you know, r- like anything related to race, gender, uh, socioeconomic status, when it comes to stories is so much better when you actually have people engaging in a critical dialogue around it. So, and that's something too, that I think, um, there, there is the podcast world is a very crowded world, but I do think that there's a lot of space for journalists and also frankly, this constituents, the listeners themselves, just to start generating their own content and put it out there and just like, let it go. You know, just because you don't work for Chalkbeat or you don't work for the Washington Post doesn't mean you can't, you know, put something out there. Content has become democratic. Anybody can put content out there at this point. And, And that's, that's actually, Alexander, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts about whether someone can be a jur- considered a journalist or a reporter, I saw a couple people being like, "What's the difference between a journalist and a reporter?" I, I don't know, um, but like, you know, do we consider bloggers former "quote unquote" EDU journalists, even if they're not working for some you know mega media corporation? And Ray, if I may, as we go into Ale- Alexander, I just wanted to give a little bit of, I, I, like, I get what I get what you're saying. I guess, but I'm. I'm even just asking about the reporter piece, like a reporter, what you're talking about as a columnist where you can have opinion and thoughts and stories, that's fine. 
I'm asking more about where's the responsibility of just informing the public around what is happening as in, in a way that a reporter should do. And maybe that is more of an Alexander question on that part. Can I jump in on that? I appreciate the question. Um, my, my view is that the, that there is a role because because there is a role that's just not being executed very well. And the role is to inform, not to scare, uh, which is a big thing now in journalism. How can we scare you? Can we can we can we bring up the worst possible case situation? And we, can we make sure that you have to read this article? Um, that's the thing I see a lot now, which is most disappointing to me. I'd rather have some boring journalism, frankly, um, rather than some of this um, skies falling um, dire circumstance stuff, which gets everyone so riled up and so scary. Oftentimes the situation is sometimes it's bad, but oftentimes it's not nearly as bad as it's, um, put out. I feel like the only people out there, uh, uh, on the internet or on social, the only people out there who have, who are, who are supposed to not be trying to manipulate you, um, are supposed to be the, the news reporters, right? They're supposed to be informing you. Any, anybody can scare you. Um, I just wish the journalists could um, dial back a little bit the desperation and the fear amplification and tell people what's going well, what's not going well, but not amp it up the way that they're amping it up a lot these days. So, See, and to that, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, 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 go ahead, go ahead, finish up, finish up. Well, my response to that is part of the problem right now with journalism, and this isn't necessarily true for all media outlets, local reporting, but there's a sense of, okay, especially if a lot of journalism outlets right now are receiving funds to basically survive from organizations that may have some sort of bent, right? And I remember when I was at Ed Surge, like one of the things that we were pushed to do was get those page views, you know, find the stories, get the page views, go. That boring stuff that you're talking about, Alexander, if that's not getting page views and then, you know, the folks that are paying for your existence are unhappy, then what do you do? And this is, but then you also have the other side of things with like Forbes where their site is just like littered with ads and nobody wants that experience either. So how do we have honest storytelling if the very like organizations themselves are basically being held accountable by essentially the funders to get the page views. Yeah. No, they're not even doing a very good job though. I I think the number one role for a journalist in my mind is you're always supposed to be making the public smarter about the major systems that serve them. Right. That's a very simple and elegant kind of way of looking at it. You're supposed to be making the public smarter about the major institutions that serve them. And some of that is boring stuff. Like we used to to do the annual reporting of what schools were doing. We're beating the odds and we're doing really well. You can't fudge that stuff too much. You can't, that can't just be all opinion and it's not all political or whatnot, but it got read. But you know who pushed back on schools being ranked as beat the odds and all that stuff every year or whatnot. So then the corporate papers start saying, okay, some parents don't like that their schools are being underrated and blah, 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 whatever. So then they they forfeit their role of trying to make sure the public stays smart about the school board, the city council, the mayor's office, all the things that serve them, right? The county, the state, the federal government and all of that. So that's a big problem. I think that the, the problem I'm wondering about, and I'll back off after this question. I watch you guys a lot. I watch education reports on Twitter. I, I fall down your rabbit holes or whatnot. There are so many of y'all that not y'all specifically on this show, but that are trying to be famous so hard. Um, trying to like, so you've seen one or two breakthrough cases, like COVID journalist breakthrough cases where they became famous or they won some major money or some award or something like that. And it just spurred a generation who thinks that now they're the story. Like I'm like, I'm so-and-so I'm not going to name names, but, um, and, and they're living within the story. And that feels like a problem. That feels like a big problem. All right, so that's not a question, but I'm going to throw a question out there. It kind of was a question, but okay, go ahead, man. All go right, ahead. all right. So it's the messy, it's the messy section of the show, and so uh, there's a, a, a article that I'm reading, and I think Alexander, I think you may have critiqued the Beyonce of education journalism, and there's a, a heavy quote in here from one uh, 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 Christopher Stewart, and it is hilarious. But so first and foremost, like, how did you, like, how did you get to writing that story and what made you choose him as the person that you were quoting for that? Oh, come on, man. You know what made him choose me. I'm I'm amazing. What's wrong with you? 
Don't bring hatred into the show, bro. <laughs> you know what? Jealousy will get you nowhere, Ray. Yo, listen. Jealousy will get you nowhere, Raymond. Anyways, I, I, I've got I've gotten several texts about how great my tan looks. I am not jealous. Of I cannot I cannot even tell you guys how amazing this is because I've been listening to y'all for like years, and I feel like I'm just sitting at the cool kids table and just watching like the shots go back and forth, and I'm like, oh my god, is this really happening right in front of me? This is crazy. So please continue. Cool kids plus Ray. Every Sunday, not for you. Know, hey, so. Yo, cool kids plus me. I'm with it, but I want to know about this Beyonce education thing. Well, first of all, um, I don't know whether you're asking the question because you want to give Chris a little hell or whether you're really curious. But like, I'm really curious. She she used to call herself that, right? That was her Twitter byline. Um, uh, this is Nicole Hannah Jones, right? And she had she came into education journalism and had this uh, uh, massive effect. She basically told the room full of education journalists, hey, if you're not talking about integration of schools as a priority way to make schools work better for black and brown kids, you're not doing your job. And and um, there was a, a, a readiness for that, right? There was a, she had written some pieces and there was a readiness for that. And, and people went out and started writing those pieces, um, sometimes skipping over um, questions about school integration, um, uh, that, that, that might've been asked and Chris, um, would show up at some of these conferences. And, and I remember vividly one, um, uh, where he and Nicole Hannah Jones were on a panel together. I think you were on, gosh, it must've been three or five of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started having questions. I started, uh, having questions partly cause I saw what Chris was saying. There was a guy named Lemieux McCoy Miller, who was also talking about uh, uh, race in the suburbs. There's a woman here in New York who, if you haven't had her on the show yet, um, uh, Lurie Daniels Favor. She's all about uh, Afrocentric success in schools. Let's not try to do the integration thing on the backs of schools. Anyway, I started having some questions. I thought it was interesting um, that we had this rock star. I mean, this is a long time ago. Um, uh, This is even before the 1619 Project and all the rest. So I thought I'd write a profile of her and I I lucked out. I I talked to a bunch of people, some of whom agreed with her, some of whom didn't. And then that same week, she won the MacArthur uh, Genius Grant. Um, So that's the story behind behind that, um, behind that piece. I don't know what you thought about it. I'd love to hear. No. So so the piece was dope. You're amazing. But I'm more interested in. Chris and Chris's take, because this is my first time seeing Chris's take. And so, Chris, what, what what's your thinking behind this? I mean, I was in a room when she told a room full of mostly white journalists, stop writing uh, stories about reform, charter schools, um, teacher evaluation. All of those things are just uh, messing with the edges of education. The only real story is integration and you are missing it. And I watched them lap it up. I watched them just stand in line like in awe, like they had just met their black talisman who told them every way to be perfect. And they couldn't wait to get their books signed. And it was weird to me as I sat there thinking, God damn, this is who's going to tell America's education stories. And she has just told them one of the dumbest pieces of advice I've ever heard in my life, which is to stop writing a, a number of stories that are important to the mechanics of education, like teacher evaluation, teacher placement, the teacher pipeline, schools and the impact of schools and how schools work and don't and how schools that beat the odds, how they work. She just gave them a free pass to feel like they're super woke now because all they have to do now is say it all hangs on integration and like just like the sheep that people can be, they went out and wrote that story and they wrote it over and over again. And you know who they left out of the majority of those stories? Black and brown people who lived through integration and didn't have a great experience with it. Black and brown people who didn't think that closing down black and brown schools was the number one way to like fix education in America. So she gave a, a, a not and it didn't happen just once. It happened multiple times in different rooms. You could just see the impact that these folks had that she had on them. And I thought they have way too much power to be that sheepish. Right. To be that sheep like to just take something like that and run with their marching orders. And it created somewhat like we've had a reform ice age in reporting now over the last several years. 
The last several years have been a lot of social justice reporting, a lot of super woke reporting, a lot of, you know, abolitionist teacher. We want to blah, 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 whatever. It's about, but it's about, it's about. I know what it, listen, do what you got to do, bro. But where, what about the mechanics of teaching? What about the mechanics of how schools operate? What about the business and the bureaucracy of education on the local level? We have bureaucracies locally that are doing damage to people and hurting them. And there, there are stories there that 20 years ago would have gotten people just not just fired, someone would have went to jail, right? Charles and I did a, a, a stint, just a, a couple of days of listening to people in Stockton. Stockton used to have four education reporters and now they have zero. They have one social media site that's covering everything there and driving the news cycle there. What we heard about what's going on in the district in Stockton is so crazy ridiculous that the only way you can get away with it is to not have any education reporters in, in the vicinity. Can I ask you a question though, Chris? Like if this, if, if this is where you feel like we're lacking, are we looking too much to more general local and national reporting outlets for that instead of more niche reporting sites. Like I'm thinking, for example, you're talking about the mechanics about how schools operate, like Toya just mentioned. I feel like I see that it's just on more niche sites. I'm not going to necessarily see that on the New York Times, but I may see it on Chalkbeat. I may see it on Edutopia. I may see it on, you know, some of the more edu specific places that people who work in education are going to go to do you not feel like that's how it is no i'd agree i mean i'd agree that that's a lot of where it is but i think the people who are even writing for those other outlets have to be held to account to write serious pieces about the mechanics of education because again if the intent is to make the public smarter about the about the the uh, the organizations that serve them or the the entities that serve them, they would have to cover some of that. Like the fact that it took so long to get the science of reading into the the news. I mean, and it took a fairly remarkable kind of yeah. all the the you know planets aligning to make it happen. To me, is weird. That was just like a story that was sitting there for years. What do you mean America's teachers don't know how to teach reading? <laughs> and like, and nobody is, is like covering it. So I think the niche part is, is smart, but he, listen, who, and Alexander, I'm going to put you on a hot seat for this. Cause I don't know, maybe you have done what I'm about to say, but um, you have Diane Ravitch and Carol Burris, two white women. One uh, uh, is a, uh, a private school parent was and the other uh taught in a school that had so few black people in it that you swore it was like a a, a reshooting of of like a osmond family reunion right so 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 they write a piece and it goes straight on to valerie strauss's uh uh real estate on the washington post yeah a paper of note for the whole world yeah. so she literally has real estate carved out just specifically to be the pr arm of Randy Weingarten, Diane Ravitch, all the Sisters of Mercies uh, on the massive resistance side of the new Jane Crow. They have spot right there in the Washington Post and no one ever calls it out. Oh, I, I do, but um, I haven't been able to get anyone to, to, to respond to it. I walked up to, to uh, Marty Barron, uh, the head of the Washington Post and said, hey, you've got someone operating as a columnist on your education news page. And he said, oh, people like her and people don't mind. I've, I've taken a, a couple of swings at, at that because I think it's a, an embarrassment for the Washington Post. Um, and um, uh, they don't seem to worry about it. She's she she could be writing opinion pieces. That would be fine. But she's on the education page. She's on the news page. And I share your objection to that. I will say, though, that if you had to ask me in 2021, what bothers me the most? Um, uh, uh, I guess maybe I've given up on the on that Valerie Strauss thing. Um, <laughs> me too. I, I, I hope that um, you know there's a relatively new editor in there, and I hope that they figure it out and they move Valerie over to the opinion or the ideas section and just let the news section be the news section. But in the meantime, the the person who gets the most um, airtime, um, free airtime on the news, uh, and and gets very little. Uh, uh, fact checking of what she says is 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 Randy Weingarten, right? Mm -hmm. Who for the who for the record um, uh, funded me for a while, 
um, at the beginning of the grade. Oh, that's it. The show is over now, man. Oh, that's it. We done now. No, no, no. Appreciate the disclosure. My point is is that she's quoted in every education story about every topic. First of all, I'm not sure she's the most knowledgeable person. And second of all, she's just not held to account the way that you would hold another newsmaker. You know, if you have someone on your show, whether the the show is big or small, you've got to ask them if, if they talk, if they say something that doesn't seem to be right or true to you, you've got to say, hey, wait a second, six months ago, didn't you say such and such? Mm-hmm. And so that's an example of the accountability um, feeling that I that I worry is lost. It's strange. There's this um, fear mongering that's going on in education journalism. This how can we scare people and grab their eyeballs and make them think the sky is falling, which I think is a big problem. And then on the other side, there's this um, weak, uh, deferential lack of accountability. And, 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 and that would be my main objection. If you're going to have someone on your show or if you're going to have someone, if you're going to quote someone, you got to fact check what they say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so really quickly, um, I want to want to swing it to, to Mary Jo. And so my question for you is like, so you've done you've done um You've done full-time media uh, coverage, and then you've also done, you know, just your independent thing. What's the difference between the two, and what what are the pros and cons of, of both? Um, well, let's start with the cons. So one thing that's – so when I was at EdSurge, one thing that was always very difficult for me, and I still continue to struggle with this to this day, is that so much of our – operations were based on grant funding. I think at some point we were hoping that we would have been able to, you know, kind of generate our own media through, you know, alternative sources, posting jobs on our jobs board for, you know, ed tech professionals, things like that. But there's just, it's hard to make money in media. Let's be real, unless you have somebody, you know, backing you. So I think one of the hardest things for me was, like there were moments when I was told, you know, you need to write more stories like this because that's what the Zuckerberg Foundation wants. That's what the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation wants. Um, one of my favorite projects that I did when I was at EdSearch was the 50 States Project, where I would endeavor to get one teacher from every single state um, to write for us every year. Um, so we had like full geographic representation across the country, but there was a point at which it was kind of getting pushed in the direction of like, you have to have them write about personalized learning. And like most buzzy type words, it was just the flavor of the year. And so I remember at that point thinking, I can't do this much longer. Now that I'm outside of it, I don't have that same pressure coming from the the people that are writing the checks. You know, I don't write now for my livelihood. I just do it for the sake of trying to bring stories to light that are, I see as important, but don't necessarily get the same, you know, coverage that maybe somebody who is beat reporting, but actually get paid by their, you know, boss media organization is pushing them in the direction of the pros though. So let's see. So that was more of a con working for a, um, a media organization. What I do miss about it though, is literally just looking for a story constantly. Um, I mean, when you are a a full-time journalism, when you're a full-time writer, when you're a full-time education writer, you are talking to literally everybody. And I remember there were moments when, you know, I came across like somebody who had an incredible story who just hadn't had the opportunity to share it. And I was like, we're going to share your story and make this happen. I don't have as much time for that, but I also don't think I was ever really built to be a full-time journalist. I respect Alexander fully because he has thrown himself into it with everything he's got. I always felt like I was a bit of a warrior on the outside of this circle. And I never really felt like I could have deep lasting impact by being a writer, which is funny when you said earlier, um, Chris, that you were talking about this idea of kind of like the journalist, the, the journalist influencer is kind of like the the um, impression I got from what you were saying. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that actually ever really satisfied me in the ways that you, th- you, you think it might, because as an education journalist, it's important to bring stories to the forefront. But 
are you actually changing action? That's what I'm not sure about. And it's easier for me to see that now in the work that I currently do in this after school program that I work on. But, you know, you are kind of like on the outside looking in when you're writing about the stories. There is a huge value that you provide, but it's a very different type of space. So, so I'm going to bring Reef into the conversation. So Reef, talking, they were talking earlier about niche writing and you got probably one of the more popping education blogs um, in the Philly Third Ward blog. And so what's your secret sauce? Okay, because wait a second, wait a second. We got to get in the right, right, right ward, bro. Like you, 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 four, you four wards over. You four wards over. Like, his brother's in the seventh ward and you, you like in the... Hey, listen, all I know about is the ninth ward. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> well, Reef, tell us about Cincinnati, bro, because we know that you're in Cincinnati these days. I know you, you, you had never been there, but, you know, just tell us about it. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> no, but read your blog is popping, bro. I, 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 I definitely read it. So, what's your secret? And like, where do you? What's your inspiration for your content? And you know, when you're when you're uh, pushing your narratives in terms of just telling the truth, like, what's your inspiration? I mean, for me, and um, you know, thanks for that. I think it's really the the voices. I just enjoy hearing people's voices who are actually impacted and who are in this space, right? Like, and so, you know, what we try to do is. Uh, you know, the team at, at Philly Seventh Ward is trying to uplift voices. And the name actually came from when W.B. Du Bois was here, you know, got hired by University of Penn, but they wouldn't even give him an office. So he was out in the hood in South Philly, the Seventh Ward, you know, he was doing a study on black Philadelphians and the seventh ward was the one that was most populous with, with black folks. And so that's why we took the name seventh ward because that's where the black folks were. And so we just applied it to, you know, education. And so it was a lot of Philly based stuff, but stuff that also, you know, would have national implications, but, you know, a lot of the writers are mostly educators, parents, you know, um, students have even, um, you know, been a part of it. And I think those are one of the things like I love, you know, uh, black publication, whether it's newspapers, whether there are, you know, podcasts or whatever outlet that folks have. I, I wish we had more student newspapers, you know, like back in the day or, um, you know, whatever platform a media, but just to share their voices, their experiences and saying like, nah, listen, whatever is in the paper, here's what we're actually living and experiencing, you know, um, and I think it's so very few black owned you know, radio stations or newspapers, you know, I know we got word here in Philly or the Tribune and, you know, uh, you know, places probably Chicago, New York have it. But, you know, one of the, uh, you know, also a question that I have is, you know, what's going well? You know, I, I think like who's who are uh, bright spots? You know, I, I think sometimes of like Green at, at the New York Times and other folks like what what is going well? Because they're, you know, it's to borrow Oakland's phrase, hella uh, problematic. So what are what are some spaces that are, you know, that are working or just at least a glimmer of hope that people can can follow, tune into, try to replicate, try to understand, um, you know, I got I got one if, if you don't mind. Yeah, go ahead, please. No, there's this thing that's maybe four years old now called Report for America, mm. um, which is a riff on. Yes. Teach for America. It's basically two year fellowship in a newsroom for a young reporter. Um, half the cost is paid by, this is going to sound familiar to some of you, half the cost is paid by the, the organization and half the cost is paid by the newsroom. And there are some great, first of all, a lot of them end up covering education issues and I hope that they stay and keep going. Um, and, um, a they lot of them, them in diverse candidates, they, they are, I think they're doing well, they're doing better than the better than. Yeah. Um, and some of them are coming in with a, they're not coming in from a, education perspective. They're coming in from a community perspective. For example, there's a young uh, young woman at the Sahan Journal in, uh, in Minneapolis. Um, I'm seeing a lot of stories that, first of all, I wouldn't see because there's ranks of education journalists are so depleted. And I'm also seeing stories that are just more clear-eyed. You know, sometimes, um, I mean, being young has its disadvantages, but one of the advantages is like, you just, you just, you see something wrong and it seems wrong and you just, it's uncomplicated. So I've seen some great stories out of this organization called Report for America and they're growing and I'd keep an eye out for, for them. So bringing Charles into the loop, Charles, man, you write some amazing pieces and they usually go viral. Um, <laughs> what's stopping you from writing more and, and who, who's in your, who's in your sites in terms of like doing really good work, uh, education reporting? 
Yeah, well, one of the people, I mean, his name came up a bunch, but Dirk, that's how Dirk and I met because we were both writing and people put us together. And the reason why I was writing is because I would find so many mistakes in the local paper like that just were just wrong. It wasn't even like big. It was like easy things that you could check. And there's just a lack of accountability in, uh, in, in education reporting as it is now. So the people that I look at now, uh, I look at first, I look at like, I look at the notes from the board meeting. I try to look at, uh, you know, as many things that I can get source on, uh, the data that's provided by the district or the school that I'm looking at. And then I try to look at a bunch of different articles when I do it. Um, like I said, Dirk was one of the people that I looked at out here. Um, and usually, honestly, information officers are people that I tend to go to just because they are just, it's just a more old school who, what, when, where, why? Like, and I think the thing that we have to teach people is like the people that you name, like the Nicole's and other people, I have no issue with what they're right. As long as next to it, it says opinion. You can write whatever you want. If it's opinion pieces, it gets dangerous when people don't know the difference between editorials and news reports. And so I try to look for news reports, Ray. And then I will say when I write, these are the facts. And then I will even sign to the reader. Here's my opinion on it. Uh, just so they know, because if my job is for them to be more educated. I think those two sentences make a big difference. Thanks for sharing that. And so, I mean, we're going to go into our closing thoughts because we're running up on time. And so uh, for closing, thank you guys for coming on. You guys were amazing. And you thought we were going to beat you. You thought we were going to beat you up. And that's just not who we are. No, I, I, but I did take a shot of whiskey before this. Cause I was like, Oh my God, it's like meeting all these like amazing people. <laughs> it's just like, honestly, this is the most nervous for a speaking engagement I've been in like years. So y'all should know that you have, you know, a following out there just so you didn't know. So closing thoughts and we'll, we'll start first with, uh, with Sharif. Yeah. Um, you know, thank you, Alexander and, and Mary Jo. Um, you know, I, it, it was interesting, Ray, you asked that question about Philly 7th Ward. And I, and I should say that, you know, my, I think the initial piece that was kind of like just public, it was it's through Ed Post. Right. And it was about this. And I pitched it to other places. Um, and they were like, and the title was something about, you know, be subversive or something that was in there was telling black men, you know, be, te- be a teacher, be an educator and be subversive. And folks were just like, oh, subversive, oh, you know, to the to districts or to school. What do you mean? Right. Like they they were really nervous about having that type of thing. I'm like, listen, you know, the educators I know that carry their weight, they are pushing back. Uh, within the system, you know, um, and this is again, we've spoken about this before when I first met Chris, he was the only person from the national from any national type of publication that was interested in coming to Philly to meet with these young black men who were leading classrooms and schools. Right. And so I think a, a part of it, and again, it still goes back to, you know, how do we uplift stories? And so he was there with youth, you know, 22 year olds who are like, yeah, you know what? I'm choosing to lead a classroom because to me, this is the most important thing because my experience was so different or because I had experience and my cousin's experience was different. Right. And so they was it was very close to home. It was personal and they wanted to make those changes. And. And, and it really struck me and I wasn't surprised, but, you know, when uh, both of our guests said, like, many of the folks who are doing the work, they are like absolutely fine. Like their their head is in the cloud as far as what is actually happening and the realities on the ground are just so, uh, you know, uh, radically different. So, um, yeah, thanks again for being on uh, this evening. And hopefully we get, um, you know, we get more and more folks uh, who's experiencing education. Um, where it's not a public good, it's a public bad and a, a, a devastation for uh, for so many folks. So hopefully those stories get uplifted, centered and and um, produce the changes that we need. Solid. Thank you for that, Reef. Uh, next, we'll go to Chris. Muted. There we go. So it was a great discussion. Thank you guys all uh, for the discussion. I think it's really important to always kind of talk about who's going to tell the stories to the public. The reason that I am here right now that we are having this conversation, there's a lot of origin stories about like, you know, how I became an activist or whatever. But as a school board member years ago, I remember seeing so much take place from the purview of a school board member behind the scenes that I thought, man, if the public only knew half of what goes on in here, 
it would be crazy. It would be crazy if they knew when they saw what was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had read, read a book in the early 90s um, called Who Will Tell the People? Uh, William William Greider, I think it was. And I, that used to come up in my head all the time when I was on the school board. Who will tell the people? And as director, Stuart, because I was a director of the board of, of uh, education, I started writing things specifically to what I was seeing. And, and I considered myself a citizen journalist because I was going to tell the people. I wasn't just going to sit up there and try and be a politician and all that type of stuff. I was going to say, no, there are no secrets in here. We're going to talk you know, directly with the public. And uh, when I left that office, I became citizen, Stuart. And wanted to be a citizen voice and a citizen journalist and say like, listen, we don't have to wait for the people with all the fancy training and whatnot, because they're obviously falling down on the job of telling the public the real stories about the, one of the most major kind of parts of their democracy right in their own cities, which is the school board, the schools, the teachers, the teachers unions, the entire business of it, how they process children. Someone has to tell the public. And if the people who are supposed to be doing it, the the fourth estate is going to fall down and blow out like a bad knee. Citizens have to start doing it. That's where my blogging came from. And that's when I started writing. And that's why I did show up and and meet Sharif and and folks who were working on the ground who had stories that weren't being told was because I felt like somebody should do that. And uh, it turns out there were a lot of people that were already doing that and interested in doing it. And, and thus, that's where my, my organization comes from. But we still need Alexander uh, um, to, to hold people to account. And then we also still do need our freelancers, you know, also to um, um, to take this next leg of journey, to take the, the storytelling very seriously, make the public smarter and tell the stories not in facile form. Tell the stories in much deeper, longer kind of drawn out ways to make the public smarter. Thanks for that, Chris. Charles, jump in. Yeah, uh, one, just thanks to Alexander and Mary Jo for just being here. Truly enjoyed it. Um, You know, my final thought goes to two different groups. One for journalists. I think that true journalists, true to their core, journalists that have grinded to get to where they are, are probably annoyed when they see people misuse and mistreat, you know, the profession that they've worked in. My my cousin is a sports uh, columnist, and he worked very hard to get there, and he gets really upset when he sees reports editorialized versus, you know, it's like, hey, that's somebody else's job to do. Um, like our Oakland's local news outfit should be ashamed that they got outscooped by some high school students around something that's like public information. That's a problem. Like that shows a real problem. To parents out there that are listening that are watching our show, uh, it's a sad time, but the honest facts are you can't just rely on one news source. You, you just really can't. I would really push you to look at your school board's minutes and see what's in there. I would push you to do research on the business of schools. Like Chris mentioned this. I mentioned this a lot. Uh, Dr. Brian Stanley is the one who really tells us a lot, like really understanding how schools work. You should understand what a school board does versus what a superintendent does versus what staff does. I think the more information you have, the better equipped you will be able to be. And then, like I said, just finally, you have to know the difference between a news report and an editorial. Like it's it's it, because you can't take that stuff as gospel because it ends up hurting you in the long run and it hurts your kids. And um, so that would be my final thought. And, uh, you know, thank you all for having us in your houses for another week. Appreciate that. And so we'll let our guests close it out. Mary Jo, we'll start with you. Oh, man. I mean, it's hard to even know. I feel like the synapses in my head are just bursting in all sorts of directions. And we could be doing this for another 10 hours, which is why I wonder, why do you all do this at 9 p.m. ET on a Sunday when we're like struggling with the Sunday scaries before we go to work the next day at 8 a.m.? But, you know, I think that as I've been watching the comments come in, um, I keep thinking to myself, why don't we so what? Dr. Cole said, I keep going back and forth between Charles and Dr. Cole because I feel like I know. Yeah, it's like I call you Charles like offline and the Dr. Cole, you know, in this situation. Um, But what I think is interesting is, you know, you mentioned that the kids in Oakland scooped the adults. That doesn't surprise me in the slightest. I wish that we would do a better job of allowing kids to control the narrative and elevate their voices. Um, I've seen some news sources try to do it. But again, they come from more of those niche communities. And I would honestly love to see more of the traditional local news sources elevate the student voice, bring them on as columnists, temporary reporters, summer interns, and just like let them tell the stories. 
And frankly, there is a lot of news being told on social channels that kids are a part of, Discord, TikTok, call it what you will, that are completely like just over our heads, anybody over the age of, you know, 22. And they're sharing information with each other that we're not even privy to. So why not put them on more of a localized national platform? Um, So that's kind of my last thought, because I also know that amongst listeners, there's probably a lot of people here that are, you know, parents, teachers, administrators, encourage your kids, encourage your kids to write, encourage them to start putting stuff online, you know, reaching out to like local organizations, seeing if they can write something on the site. Frankly, I would be thrilled to see more of the student voice come to light and not editorialized by any adult trying to push some sort of narrative using the kids as the vehicle for that. Just let the kids say what they want to say and go. So that's kind of my final thought. Thank you for that. Alexander. I just want to say thanks so much for having me on. I learned a lot. I've got, I've been writing down story ideas here. If anybody, any of you or anyone who's watching wants to write about what the education journalism in their area is is doing well or not so well or could do better. Um, we commission pieces from contributors. We pay. I would love to have uh, more uh, voices from different places. Um, and I just wanted to welcome any or all of you to, um, to send me an idea um, or a piece that you've already published that I, I could get more eyeballs on. Um, I'd love for that to happen. Yeah, thank you for that. And so my closing thought is uh is based off some dads, some dads in uh, in um uh, in Shreveport, Louisiana. And so uh, there's a story that's circulating where there was 23 fights in a high school, and dads, being dads, black dads, uh, took it upon themselves to station themselves in the schools uh, in order to stop the fighting. And since they've been in the schools, there have been no fights. Right. And that is amazing. And I just wanted to just shout out and lift uh, those black dads that are out uh, doing their thing called Dads on Duty. Uh, tried to get them on the show tonight for the first segment. It didn't work out. But um, maybe on a future show, uh, we may be able to get them on in order to highlight that. And so you guys have been listening to the Eight Black Hands podcast, episode 138. We'll see you next week. You have been listening to the Eight Black Hands podcast with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecky, and Stewart. If you like what you heard, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Eight Black Hands One. Thank you for listening.